please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We're in a series of messages through Paul's letter to the Romans, and this morning we find ourselves in the last half of chapter 5. John Milton wrote the great poem, Paradise Lost. And I think as you look at these particular verses, you can come away with the title, Paradise Lost and Found. Paradise Lost and Found. These are some of the most difficult verses of the Apostle Paul in the letter. As the Apostle Peter said in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 16, some things that Paul writes are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort to their own ruination. Well, it's the Word of God, and we're called to carefully study and expound that Word. And I believe Paul has some wonderful things for us this morning in these particular verses. I have a great debt to Dr. John R.W. Scott, who I consider one of the greatest uh, expositors in the English-speaking world. He's gone now, but he blessed us with many, many good books and uh, many fine expositions of sacred scripture. And so I'm indebted to him and his uh, commentary series, uh, The Bible Speaks, uh, for a good bit of the content today. We're going to look at this passage, and I would like to point out three things to you in terms of the structure that Paul has for these words. Number one, Paul gives us an introduction to Adam and Christ in verses 12 through 14. And then in verses 15 through 17, Paul gives us a contrast between Adam and Christ. And then finally, in verses 18 through 21, Paul says essentially the same thing he has said in the last section, verses 15 through 17, but he says it in a different way, with some different words. And here we have not a contrast, but a comparison between Adam and Christ. I'd like to invite you to hold the passage in your Bible or in the bulletin up so you can see it as we walk through this together. Maybe it's tangled you up in the years in the past, and, but there are reasons, I believe, why the Apostle Paul does what he does as we look at the failure of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which we read about this morning in Genesis 3, and the triumph of our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly at Calvary, and even before that in Matthew 4, which we read this morning, as he faced the various temptations of Satan, just like Adam did, but with triumph. So let's look first of all at the introduction to Adam and Christ in verses 12 through 14. The topic of these verses is sin and death. And Paul describes three downward steps or stages in human history resulting from the entrance of sin and death. First, sin entered the world through one man. Now, Paul is not concerned with the origin of sin and the origin of evil, but only with how it invaded the world and human beings. And he says sin entered the world through the disobedience of a man, and that, of course, was Adam. Eve was also implicated in the sin, but Paul leaves her out because Adam is held responsible. 
I don't know if you noticed or not when we read Genesis 3, but Adam was standing right there whenever Eve took the fruit and ate it. You'd think he would have said something. Every time I read that, I want to say, pull your socks up and leave the family. But Adam said nothing, even though he knew the very words that the Lord had given him. And later on in the New Testament, the Bible makes it clear that God's structure and economy for the family is that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the leader, and therefore he is held solely responsible for the sin entering the world. And so sin entered the world through one man. Now secondly, death then entered the world through sin. As Adam was the door through which sin entered the world, so sin was the door through which death entered the world. Paul is alluding to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. You remember where God told Adam and Eve, he gave them the command, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And death, both physical and spiritual, is the penalty for disobedience to God's command and God's word. And thirdly, as we look at verse 12, in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Sin entered the world through a man. Death then entered through the world through sin. And then in this way came to all men death because all sinned. Now, there's been some controversy over how to interpret what Paul is saying in the last portion of verse 12. Death came to all men because all sinned. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a neg negative example first. There was a man once upon a time named Pelagius who lived many, many years ago in the 4th century, 4th and 5th century. He was a British monk, and he was basically a liberal. He denied original sin. He taught a form of self-salvation and was opposed to his great uh, rival that year, Augustine. Now, Pelagius' view was this, that Adam was simply the first sinner, and everybody, ever since Adam, followed his example. They just simply followed his bad example. But Paul is not teaching that here. Paul is not comfortable with that. And with the brilliance that only Paul could bring forth and only the Holy Spirit could unearth for us, he describes his objection to this in verses 13 and 14. Paul is actually confirming the reality and the doctrine of original sin. Or we might call it birth sin, which every human being has since the time of the fall of Adam and Eve. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. First, Paul makes it clear that sin was in the world between the time of Adam and Moses and the giving of the law. And so what Paul is saying is Adam disobeyed a clear commandment from God, not to eat the fruit of the single tree, Genesis 2.14. The Israelites would not be simply following Adam's example in sinning because they had no clear command from God until the time of the law. Until the time of the law, they did not sin like Adam. So they didn't follow his example. So we conclude that the sin of the Israelites was not in following the example of Adam because they had no revelation as he did. Now, secondly, Paul states explicitly now the inference of verse 13, namely, that the presence of death from Adam until the giving of the law demonstrates that those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam were in fact still sinners 
against God. I hope you follow the logic here. Paul is saying that while death came to Adam as a result of his sin, his disobedience to a direct command of God, death came to all other human beings whose sin was not in the likeness of Adam's sin. That is, they did not follow Adam's example. And Paul's point is that there were others after Adam and before the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, who did not sin by disobeying a direct command. Think about the examples in the Bible. We think about the people of the flood. Remember the flood in Noah's Ark? There was no direct command from heaven to point out the people's ungodliness. There was no direct command at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. There was no command for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. These did not voluntarily or overtly violate expressly revealed ordinances of God. Nevertheless, they disobeyed God's moral law, which was written in their hearts, according to what Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 14 of Romans. And they were punished as a result of their sin. And so Paul is essentially saying, all sinned in and through Adam, and therefore all died. Every human being born since the time of Adam and Eve comes into the world with a sin nature. With a sin nature. David himself said in Psalm 51, In sin my mother conceived me. And so Adam and Eve gave birth to sin, brought about death, and all since that time have sinned in and through Adam. Adam was our federal representative. Adam was created in holiness. And he was sinless until he sinned. Don't think for a moment. I've heard people say before, if I was there, I would have done it differently. If I were there in place of Adam, I would have done it differently. No, you wouldn't. Adam was your perfect example, your federal representative. And every human being since that time comes into the world with a sin nature. This includes pagans in remote places, the infant, and even the mentally retarded. How do we know this? Well, the Bible teaches it, and physical death confirms it. Everybody dies, ladies and gentlemen. Infants die. People in remote places of the earth die. And many times people say, well, what about those people? Aren't they excused? No, not necessarily, because all have sinned. And without the doctrine of original sin, you open Pandora's box for all sorts of false teaching and bad theology. Everyone dies, and death is the penalty for sin, so there can be only one explanation. We all died spiritually in Adam. And consequently, we will die physically because all sinned in and through Adam, the representative or the federal head of the human race. And while sin is not imputed, that is, counted when there is no law, according to Paul in verse 13b, Adam's sin was imputed or accounted to every member of the human race. 
why is this important? Well, the doctrine of original sin makes us helpless and hopeless apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have to see your need before you can receive salvation. And to entertain a notion that I would have done it better is nothing but a veiled display of self-righteousness. You see, without original sin, we have gradations of righteousness and gradations of sin. And before we know it, because of our sin nature, we would be displaying some, I'm better than that person, or I'm not as sinful as that person, or I'm more righteous than this person. And that sort of behavior went on in Israel in the time of Isaiah. He speaks of it. No, the Bible teaches original sin, and it's extremely important that we understand that. And I mention infants, and I mention those who are mentally challenged. It's not to say that they can't be saved. God works wonders, and he works mysteriously and quietly sometimes. And to whom much is given, much is required. And so I believe the Lord God Almighty, especially working through his covenant in covenant families, moves with a great grace. He's prone to be merciful and gracious in touching hearts of those who cannot speak for themselves. Nevertheless, we should never presume upon his grace. Well, Paul says, here is Adam and here is Christ. Now, in verses 15 through 17, having introduced them and the whole of the doctrine of original sin, Paul gives us a contrast between Adam and Christ. I want you to notice three principles or three things with reference to this contrast, verse by verse. First of all, in verse 15, we see the nature of their actions was different. Verse 15. But the gift, Paul says, is not like the trespass. Adam's trespass was an act of selfishness. And the fall, as we know it, was a deviation from the path which God had clearly shown him. He insisted on going his own way. In contrast to that, Christ's gift was an act of self-sacrifice, which bears no resemblance to Adam's act of self-assertion. And you'll notice in the latter part of verse 15, Paul elaborates on this disparity in the rest of the verse. If the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and consequent gift, that is eternal life, overflow in rich, undeserved abundance to the many. You see, the nature of the actions of Adam and Christ were different. And I believe Paul does this contrasting section to demonstrate how wholly different Adam and Christ were because of his deity. Jesus was the God-man. And he triumphed where Adam failed. And so the natures of their actions were different. Now, secondly, the immediate effect of their actions was different. Look at verse 16. The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. And the words are almost identical with those introduced in the previous verse. But now, the emphasis is on the consequence of each action. And in the latter part of verse 16, in each case, Adam, God's judgment brought condemnation. In the case of Christ, God's gift brought justification. And the contrast is absolute. Yet there is more to the antithesis than the two words condemnation and justification offer. 
It is that God's judgment followed only one sin. Notice this. God's judgment followed one sin. Whereas God's gift followed many sins. What's Paul saying? Well, first of all, the secular mind expects many sins to attract more judgment than one sin. But God's grace does not operate according to mere human understanding. And so while one sin plunged the whole human race into sin and into condemnation and judgment, there's one act of God's champion, God's Savior, Jesus Christ, in the midst of many, many trespasses, where he comes and offers salvation. Listen to the words of Charles Cranfield. That the one single misdeed should be answered by judgment is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift, this is a miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension. And that's the way the gospel works. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so that God alone is glorified, and His grace is upheld and demonstrated for all to see and to appreciate. And so the immediate effect of their actions was wholly different. Thirdly, the ultimate effect of their two actions is also different. Look at verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Once more, the one man Adam and the one man Jesus Christ are juxtaposed. And so are their end results of their actions, which now are said to be death and life. But this time, the contrast is subtle in order to highlight the superiority of the work of Christ. You see, on the one hand, Paul speaks of the stark reality that death reigns. That's, that sounds terrible, that death reigns. But that's what happened when Adam sinned. Not only temporarily, from Adam to Moses, but Paul makes it clear in verse 14, it reigned permanently. Death had a permanent reign over us as a result of the fall into sin by Adam and Eve. But on the other hand, we who are not we are not told that through Christ life reigns. The words, how much more, together with the reference of God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, alert us to expect a greater blessing. Namely, that the recipients of God's abundant grace will themselves reign in life. Isn't that lovely? Formerly death was our king, and we were slaves under its tyranny. But what Christ has done for us is not just exchange death's kingdom for a much more gentle kingdom of life while leaving us in the position of subjects. No. Instead, Christ delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with it and rule over it or reign in life. This is one chief reason why the Christian doesn't have to fear death. Because death has been defeated by the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are baptized into the body of Christ, as we'll learn next time in Romans 6, we have this intimate, we are united with Christ in this intimate relationship. And as he was buried in baptism, so were we. As he died to sin, we died to sin. As he lives under righteousness, so do we. 
because our baptism represents that incredible union and our forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. This is the much more. The recipients of God's abundant grace will themselves reign in life. What Christ has done for us is not just to exchange death. No, he delivers us from the rule of death. And now we rule over it. We become kings, sharing the kingship of Christ, with even death under our feet now. And one day, it'll be destroyed altogether, whenever Christ returns. And so you see, Paul presents this marvelous contrast between Adam and Christ. Now we come to the latter part of the chapter, verses 18 through 21. And what Paul does is he says essentially the same thing again, but this time he says it by way of a comparison. How do we explain Paul's structure? That's what makes this passage somewhat complicated. Well, I believe in the first section, 15 through 17, Paul is demonstrating, as again, how opposite Christ is from Adam, how holy other he is because of his deity. But here... He's demonstrating Christ, I believe, as the last Adam. Not just deity, but holy humanity. Christ, the God-man. Where Adam failed, Christ triumphed. Where Adam messed things up, Christ came along and by comparison made all things right. Having completed the contrast between Adam and Christ, Paul now develops the comparison. Notice his sentence structure is no longer not like or how much more, as in verses 15 through 17. But now it's just as, and so also, as in verses 18, 19, and 21. Not that contrast and comparison are mutually exclusive. That's not what Paul's saying. Even while painting the contrast in verses 15 through 17 between trespass and gift, between condemnation and justification, between death and life, Paul did not forget the comparison that is the one affecting the many. And so now in verses 18 through 21, while emphasizing the parallel, he will not overlook the contrast. Yet as just as and so also structure in each verse is intended to highlight the similarity between Adam and Christ. The one act of the one man determined the destiny of the many. Look quickly with me. First of all, the immediate results of the work of Adam and Christ. Look at verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. As similar to verse 16, Paul again highlights condemnation and justification. But here, the emphasis is on the parallel. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness led to justification that brings life for all men. Then he points out the nature of their actions, the nature of the actions of Adam and Christ, just like he did in verse 15. But there it was trespass and gift. Here it's framed as disobedience and obedience. Yet again, the emphasis is on the parallel. Just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Obedience unto death and the death of the cross, we might say, the many will be made righteous. And the expressions made sinners and made righteous cannot mean that these people actually became morally good or evil, but rather that they were constituted legally righteous or unrighteous in God's sight. 
listen to the words of the great theologian Charles Hodge. Quote, the disobedience of Adam was the ground of their being placed in the category of sinners. The obedience of Christ, the obedience of Christ, was and is the ground on which the many are to be placed in the category of the righteous. What a magnificent thing. The ground of my salvation, the ground of my righteousness, is not anything I've done. It's all of Him, Christ. Now notice in verse 20, Paul has a digression, but I think it's a very necessary one. He speaks of the law. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. See, Paul's been developing his analogy between Adam and Christ. So a natural question might arise, why then was the law given? What's the purpose of the law? If people were already sinners and already died prior to getting the law, what's the purpose of the law? And Paul shocks us. This would be really, really challenging for any conscientious Jew to hear the answer to that question. It was added, Paul says, so that the trespass might increase. 20 verse A. Part of what Paul meant by this, he has already explained in previous places. The law reveals sin, he said in chapter 3, verse 20. How does it do it? By defining it, by displaying it. Whenever we see a wicked act, it becomes more understandable against the relief of God's law. In Romans 7, chapter 7, verse 8, Paul will add that the law even provokes sin. We've mentioned that before. You know, the quickest way to break the law is to see a sign that says, don't do this. Don't step on the grass. There's something in us that wants to step on the grass. The law brings forth and provokes sin because of our sin nature. So these statements had to be shocking to Jewish people who thought that the Mosaic law was going to be given to increase righteousness, not to increase sin. The law certainly restrains sin in society. But in the heart of a human being, this is one of the multifaceted uses of the law. It brings forth our sin. And it shows our need for a Savior. And that's why the Bible, theologians call the law our tutor to lead us to Christ. Paul says that the law increased sin rather than diminishing it. And it provoked sin rather than preventing it. But he goes on in verses 20b through 21, giving us the ultimate results of the actions of Adam and Christ. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This allusion to grace introduces Paul's third comparison between Adam and Christ, in which he takes up the alternative ultimate issues of life and death. And the emphasis is again on the parallel which compares the two kinds of reign. God's purpose that it just that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. Is grace reigning in your life? Have you ever seen your need because you acknowledge your sin and how far short of God's glory you fall? You see, all people are either in the line of Adam or in the line of Jesus Christ. They're federal representatives. 
And when you look at the life of Adam and you see his failure, and you see your failure through his failure, then the Bible says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Because where Adam failed, Jesus triumphed. And where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. He went to the cross all the way to obey the Father's will to redeem a people for himself. I like the conclusion or concluding remarks from Reggie Kidd. Listen to this. Paul has explained how paradise lost in Adam is regained in Christ. The reason we can have peace and hope and confidence is that Christ has more than made up for Adam's fall and has more than made up for its fallout as well. Paul has made three things very clear in this passage. The fall was a natural and just consequence of Adam's disobedience, but the free gift of life is an extraordinary manifestation of God's grace and His gracious gift in Christ Jesus. Secondly, it would have been easy for God to intervene and fix things right after Adam and Eve tasted the forbidden fruit, but He didn't do that. Instead, God decided to intervene following many trespasses. Verse 16 again. In other words, God waited until the world became an overflowing, tangled, hopeless mess of sinfulness. And often He has to do that in our individual lives before we really understand and appreciate the gospel. God delights in waiting to fix things in the world and in our lives only after they are apparently beyond hope and repair. Why? So that he gets all the glory. Thirdly, as Paul summarizes in 5.18, one man, Christ, offers the righteous act that leads to justification of all. One man, Christ, offers obedience that undoes the first man, Adam's disobedience. And right now, in the present, death reigns because Adam forfeited his and therefore our right to rule. But when all is said and done, however, those who receive the free gift of righteousness will reign in life. And just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the result? The entrance of sin into the human experience ultimately, get this, ultimately will only prove in the end to have brought about God's greatest grace. Let me say that again. The entrance of sin into the human experience will in the end only prove to have brought about God's greater grace. That's how sovereign God is. He can take the broken, hurting situations in society and He alone can turn them to His good and for His purposes. And that's why Isaiah says He brings beauty out of ashes. Because when your individual life is so messed up as a result of sinful behavior, as a result of bad choices and bad decisions, and you think nobody can undo this, that's not true. Jesus Christ is in the business of undoing what Adam did. Jesus Christ is in the business of moving back before the fall and taking us with him. And Paul wants us to know that everything we have done wrong has been undone because of what Christ has done. This includes all the hurt and the harm inflicted against others. Everything that keeps us in a position of 
punishing ourselves, he has forgiven. You go through life like that? You have regrets of something you said, something you did, and you can't take it back. And your conscience bugs you about it all the time. Well, that's what the accuser of the brethren does. But here, as we see, what Adam did, Christ undid. And we need to drink of that deeply. In the sovereignty of his eternal decree, God has folded into his perfect plans every regret, every bad decision you and I have ever made. And the paradise that probably every one of us grew up imagining for ourselves and then eventually learned of despairing of it is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's offered to everyone around us. Have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life? There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. It's not God in general. It's not a set of experiences where you had an answer to prayer. No, it's believing in Jesus Christ and His atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's what brings forgiveness. When we exercise faith in Him, faith in His name, He comes to live inside of us and to cleanse us of all sin and to make us sons and daughters of God. Have you had that experience? If not, I invite you to invite Him into your heart and life and begin a new reign, become a new creature, no longer under the head of Adam, but under the federal representative of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this contrast and comparison that you, by the inspiration of your Spirit, gave the Apostle Paul. And I pray, Lord, that we would all see ourselves not in the first camp of Adam, but that, Lord, because of faith in Jesus Christ, we have been transferred, and we are a part of a new humanity in Jesus. And I pray that would be a reality for everyone here today. And Lord, if it's not, I pray that you, by your sovereign hand, would draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself, they might profess faith in Christ and experience a great, great, gracious salvation. Lord, do all these things and more, and we'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.